Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. It's great to see each one of you. And again, just want to extend a special welcome if this is uh, your first time here or if you're newer uh, to Christ community. We're just so glad that you're here and that you've taken the time uh, to join us this morning. Um, I'd love before we look at this text to begin by opening in a word of prayer and asking God to help us to understand his word. Uh, Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you've given us this treasure um, that is the Bible. And uh, thank you for for all that you do uh, in revealing yourself um, to us in that way. And we ask now that as we study it together, uh, that your Holy Spirit um, would be active in applying it to our lives. Because we know that apart from his work, uh, we can't be changed Um, by this book. And so we ask for his work to be done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is anyone feeling uh, a little apathetic uh, this morning? Um, I'd ask for a show of hands, but if you were really being honest about being apathetic, you probably wouldn't raise your hand because it's kind of too much work to do. Um, and I mean, we all feel apathetic from time to time, right? I mean, it's, it's, we go through these seasons, and, uh, and one of the things I love to do uh, when I start feeling a little bit apathetic is to go uh, to despair.com. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with this website, uh, but uh, they pretty much specialize in apathy, at least in a very tongue-in-cheek kind of way. And so this is one of my, uh, my favorite despair.com posters. It says, uh, motivation, um, if a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job. Uh, the kind robots will be doing soon, um, which I think is pretty much kind of their, their mission statement. Um, another, another one of my favorites, here's a few more of them. Uh, this is believe in yourself because the rest of us think you're an idiot. Um, that's one. Uh, another one of my favorites I think I've got here is, yeah, underachievement because soaring with the eagles requires so much more effort. It's just easier there. Um, or what about give up? Uh, at some point, hanging in there just makes you look even like a bigger loser. Uh, and, I, and I think one more, here's another underachievement one, it's another favorite, uh, which is, uh, oh, this is indifference. So here's another kind of theme I've seen. If, if it takes 43 muscles to frown and 17 to smile, but it doesn't take any to just sit there with a dumb look on your face. So, and, then, and I think we've got one more. This is one of my all-time favorites, underachievement, because the tallest blade of grass is always the first to be cut by the lawnmower. So, so don't try too hard. And, and of course, we, we laugh at these, right? Um, and, and that's why I showed them. But we so often underestimate the, the power and the seriousness of apathy, don't we? Um, I mean, we can tend to be a bit apathetic about apathy. But here's the thing, that spiritual apathy is just as deadly, is just as dangerous as outright rebellion. Spiritual apathy is just as dangerous as outright rebellion. And have you ever really thought about spiritual apathy, what, what it's like? I mean, apathy is this lack of interest. It's a, a lack of concern or enthusiasm. I mean, apathy is, it basically, apathy is a yawn. It's a big yawn. Some of you probably feel like yawning now. Um, and we all go through these yawn seasons, right? I mean, seasons in our relationships where, man, it's just kind of apathetic, or maybe with our work, or just with life in general. But spiritual apathy at least in my life, it tends to flourish either when I'm sort of underwhelmed or, or overwhelmed. In those seasons of life when, when everything's going really easy and, and, and I'm really comfortable, or seasons of life when it seems like everything is going crazy and, and it doesn't even seem like God is present at all, I tend to start getting apathetic. 
but I especially get apathetic when I'm getting comfortable. Uh, when things are going pretty well, I start to get spiritually sort of just apathetic. I don't pray as often. Um, I start losing sight of what's really important to God and just focus on what is important to me. Um, I'm much more willing to compromise, uh, much less inclined to fight temptation, much more willing to just let my appetites and desires control me rather than the other way around. You see, apathy is a lot like high cholesterol or high blood pressure. It's a sign that we're not moving enough, that we've become sedentary. But it's also like high cholesterol in that it's a silent killer. And this is why apathy is actually more dangerous than outright rebellion, because actually with spiritual apathy, you don't really know what's happening. You know, sure, some of us here this morning are probably at risk of just kind of this outright rebellion against God, of just rejecting Him, of chucking it all, of, of running away from Him. And, and that's a risk for, for any of us could be in that place. But I think most of us, many of us, probably aren't at the place where we're going to go home this week and we're just going to outright reject God and, and say, I'm, I'm never coming back to church. I, I totally reject you. No, I think for many of us, the greatest risk is the slow drip, drip, drip of spiritual apathy. Like I said, spiritual apathy is, is just as dangerous, in fact, more dangerous than outright rebellion. Because it's so subtle, you don't, you don't really see it happening. I'm always sobered by C.S. Lewis's observation in the Screwtape Letters, which is one of my favorite books, uh, favorite Lewis books. And, and in the Screwtape Letters, it's a collection of imaginary letters between, between two demons. And, and one of the demons is writing to sort of his protege, and he's, he's instructing them, this is how you get the person that you're assigned to tempt to fall. And this is what he writes. Listen to what Lewis says here. He says, you will say, this is the older demon writing to the younger demon, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent you separate the man from God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge man further and further away from the light and out into nothingness. This is how Lewis concludes that paragraph. Murder is no better than cards if cards do the trick. Indeed, the safest roll to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Spiritual apathy is just as dangerous as outright rebellion. It's just as deadly. And it's not just dangerous to you and me sort of as individuals, but it's actually devastating to us as a community because we can't be the community, the congregation that God has called us to be, that Christ has redeemed us to be, that the Spirit has empowered us to be if that slow drip, drip, drip of spiritual apathy has taken hold in our congregation. And so this morning as we come to the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, in fact, the very last two chapters of the Old Testament, we find a people who are waiting, and the waiting has caused them to slip into spiritual apathy. H- have you ever noticed that, that some of the most, that, that waiting over a long period of time, it can produce some of the most patient people you will ever meet, but it can also produce some of the most bitter and apathetic people that you will ever meet. What, what does waiting do to you? 
You see, at this point in Israel's history, God had brought the people back from the land of of Babylon, from Assyria. They had been in captivity in in Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia. God has brought them back to the land, and and they've returned to their homeland. But even though their, their feet have returned to the land, their hearts are really still far away from God. The Israelites at this time, they were, they were kind of mostly obedient. They were mostly decent. They, they were free from outright idolatry. Um, they weren't worshiping idols anymore. Uh, 70 years in exile had kind of gotten that message through their head. They'd spent 70 years in Babylon for, for doing that before. And so they, they come back into the land. They said, no more worshiping uh, idols. We got that checked off. So they had a right belief. They were thinking rightly about God, but they had dead practice. They just didn't care about that much. They didn't really care that much about God anymore. It wasn't that they were against him. They just didn't care that much about him. And so God sees this danger and he sends them a messenger. Um, Malachi literally means, the name means messenger. He sends Malachi to warn them. And Malachi sees that they're in this downward spiritual spiral and he is there to restore them to a right relationship with God. And so this morning, as we look at these final chapters of the book of Malachi, the final chapters of the Old Testament, we're going to see three signs of an apathetic heart. First, an apathetic heart doubts God's goodness. And second, an apathetic heart begins to settle for lesser loves. And and finally, an apathetic heart breeds cynicism. So an apathetic heart, it doubts God's goodness, it begins to settle for lesser loves, and finally it breeds cynicism. So first, an apathetic heart doubts God's goodness. The book of Malachi begins with these words in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2, God says to his people, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So the people look around at their circumstances. They look around. They've been brought back into the land. They've been brought back home. But God's promises of a temple that's going to be filled with his presence and of a king who's going to to rule over the land, all these things haven't been fulfilled yet. And they look around at all this and, and they're struggling and they start to get spiritually apathetic. And so when God says, I have loved you, they say, yeah, right. God, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? And the answer is, is this, God has loved them this much, the entire Old Testament. We spent the last 33 weeks, the last eight months together, if you've been doing open here, reading the Old Testament together, reading these stories. This is a record of God's incredible love for his people. I mean, from the moment that God creates in Genesis 1 out of this overflow of his generosity and joy to his, his enactment of, of the plan to rescue his people when they, when they rebelled against him, God has been demonstrating his love. And we saw God's love for his people in the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And in, in the book of Exodus, as God brings his people out of captivity, we saw his love there and then his love in establishing them in the promised land. And then in giving them judges and kings to, to rule over them. And, and then, then prophets to woo them back, to warn them, to draw God's people back. This entire, the entire Old Testament, this whole chunk of the Bible, is a witness to how God has loved his people. So, so how can they say, how have you loved us? But we're a lot like them, aren't we? I mean, you and I. I mean, as a people, whether we consider ourselves Christians or not, when things start getting difficult, when we start to become apathetic, we forget about all the good things that we've experienced in life, don't we? And we forget about all that God has provided us. We begin to doubt God's 
goodness. And this is nothing new. In fact, from the very beginning, uh, all sin, the very first sin and every sin afterwards has been rooted in a doubt in God's goodness. This is the very means that the, the evil one, that Satan, the serpent, uses in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. He causes them to doubt that God is really good. He says, God is withholding from you. If, if he was really good, he wouldn't prohibit you from doing this one thing. And they believe him. They believe the lie that he would just do the one thing that God has forbidden. Then they would experience true life, true joy, true satisfaction. And of course they don't, right? I mean, because sin, temptation always lies. But see, all sin starts out this way. It starts out with a doubt in God's goodness, and it's sustained this way. So, so take, take pornography, for example. If you, if you talk to counselors, counselors will point out that the most basic and pernicious deception of pornography is the implicit belief that God is withholding something good. So, so even if you feel guilty, even if you're desperately trying to stop your behavior shows that, that God's good gifts in your life are not enough. That happiness requires something more. And, and every sin pattern works this way. It's always rooted in a doubt in God's goodness. You see, spiritual apathy will always manifest itself in this doubting that God is truly good. So the question for us then is, is how do we escape this? How do we escape this or, or begin to rebuild or restore this trust that God really is good? Well, if you look on page 802 at Malachi 3, um, and we look at verses 6 and 7, listen to what he says. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? See, God calls them out of apathy by reminding them who he is. He is the God who does not change. And because he does not change, because he's always merciful, because he's always gracious, because he's always full of steadfast love, just like Psalm 103 that, that, that Doug read for us earlier in the worship service, they are not destroyed. You see, even though they have turned away from him, even though that they have ignored his good design for life, because God does not change, they are always welcome. They are always welcome to come home to him. God says, return to me, and then I will return to you. God is saying, I don't change, therefore you're always welcome back. You're always welcome to come back to me. I will always forgive you when you seek forgiveness. I haven't left you, he says, you've left me. I haven't, I haven't changed, you're the one who's changed. I don't change, come back to me. So, so what does it mean for you and me that we have a God who doesn't change? Well, first it means that we can have great confidence in the God that we worship and the God that we serve. It means we have great confidence in because God is unchanging in his character. He is always, has been, always will be, is. He's always perfectly holy, perfectly loving, righteous, merciful, just, good, truthful, grace-extending those things about him never change. And because his character never changes, it means that we can have great hope. Because God's character never changes, it means his actions do change. And we saw this last week, even with, the, with Nineveh. Because God's character never changes, because he's always merciful, he's always just, he's always good, 
when people turn back to him, he relents of the disaster he was going to cause. So in Nineveh last week, if you were with us looking at Jonah, when the people of Nineveh repent, he doesn't destroy the city like he said he was going to. So we can have great hope that because God's character never changes, his actions toward us can change. But what does it look like to return? And there's lots of things we could say here. There's lots of ways that we could talk about what it means to return to God. But I just want to say one this morning. I think oftentimes when we think about what does it mean to return to God, we think about things that we need to start doing. So, so I, need to read, I need to read my Bible more, or I need to start praying more often, or I need to start coming to church on a more regular basis, or, or get involved in a community group. And, and all those are great things, right? I mean, those are great things to do as we seek to return to the Lord. But I think returning to the Lord often involves stopping just as much as it does starting. And we're all stopping just as much as it's starting. And this is because I think oftentimes for us, it's like we just don't have room in our life for God. I think that busyness, I think that, that exhaustion, these are the things that, that so easily breed apathy. And so maybe it's not so much a matter of starting things, but maybe it's just stopping some things. Maybe it's going to bed a little bit earlier at night so that that you get a good night's rest and you can wake up and be engaged as you read the scriptures. Or or maybe it's it's taking fewer meetings just so you have more margin in your life. Or or maybe it's it's watching less TV so you have time to do things around the house and then you have space to, to be with people in a community group. Or maybe it's just playing less games on, on your smartphone. I think often returning involves stopping some things just to make room. I mean, busyness and exhaustion are, are, are a shortcut to apathy. See, God is faithful. His care hasn't changed, but we have. That's the problem. It isn't that he's become less good. It's that we've become more apathetic. So the first sign of an apathetic heart is this doubt in God's goodness. And when you doubt God's goodness, you begin to settle for lesser loves. And you see, we as people, we are built for worship. We always worship something. We will always love something. And God is the supreme thing that we should love, but we begin to settle for lesser loves. And and I love David Foster Wallace, um, who was a writer. He certainly wouldn't have called himself a Christian, but he makes this point powerfully. He said in a a commencement address, he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. No such thing as, wor- as not worshiping. David Foster Wallace says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And, it, and if you want to know what it is that you worship, that your heart is attracted to, God says in this text, follow the money. If you want to know what you worship, follow the money. Look at verses 8 and 9. God says, will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. God says, and, and the implication of the text here isn't that people aren't sort of giving at all, but that, that they're giving God sort of second best. They're giving him the leftovers. That they, They're sort of figuring out, well, what, what do I need to survive? What do I need to live? What do I need to do to be comfortable? And then if I have some leftover, th- then I'll bring that to the temple. Then I'll bring that to God. And, and despite their social realities, despite the difficult circumstances that they're in, God is calling Israel to step out in faith 
and to sacrificially give in line with what the law had called them to. And Israel says, God, we, we can't give. You haven't provided enough for us to give. That's their, their complaint. And God says, no, you're cursed because, because you're, you're robbing me. But also, I think this is interesting. They weren't just robbing God. They're also robbing one another because in God's design for his people at this time, the tribe of the, the, the Levites, who were one of the 12 tribes of Israel that, that um, were designed, their, their goal was to um, serve in the temple, to take care of the temple, but they didn't have an inheritance in the land. So every other tribe was given plots of land. The Levites didn't have any land. What they depended on for their, their income, for their food to survive, was all on what was brought into the temple. And so in robbing God, they were actually robbing one another. They were robbing a, a section of people of the good things that God had intended for them. And, and, and although there are other issues in, in their community, we see that generosity is one of the litmus tests of faith. And why is this? Well, I think it goes back to what Jesus said in the New Testament, that, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your treasure. Wherever your treasure is invested, that's where your your heart is at. And so why is giving so important? Well, because we were designed in the image of a generous God. In fact, greed and this kind of clutching in is the most unnatural posture for people made in the image of God. And I think we feel this when we read, when we read Dickens. Uh, I love Charles Dickens. Nobody paints a better picture of, of good and evil and makes you feel the goodness of good and the evilness of evil than Charles Dickens when you, whenever you read his books or his plays. And in, and in um, A Christmas Carol, I mean, he just makes us feel like the repulsion at Scrooge's terminal tight fisted greed, right? We read this and we're like, gosh, this guy, you just can't stand his character, Right? And it's because at the core of who we are, we resonate deeply with generosity. We were made in the image of an unimaginably generous God. And when we give generously, we image God. So this is part of, God says, the way that they return to him by giving to him what represents what they treasure. And giving is always about trust. If you, if you look down at verse 10, keep reading there. He says, Bring in the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And then God says this. It shocked me when I read it. He says, Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Just give this God a try. And I love this passage because God basically says, come on, try it. See if I won't do exactly what I say I will do. He says, test me. This is the only place that I know where God actually says, test me. Try me. Try this out. See if this won't work. I, I feel like this is almost like God's version of the, the two-week Netflix uh, free trial. You know, it's like you, in grad school, I signed up for a two-week trial of, of, of Netflix, and now six years later, I've never looked back, right? I still have this thing. Like, Just give it a try. See if you like it. The same thing with Amazon Prime. Now, Rachel and I signed up for Amazon Prime. Any Amazon Prime users out there? I and mean, this is the most amazing thing in the world, right? You go on Amazon.com, you have Amazon Prime, you can buy any product in the world, and it's delivered to your doorstep in two days. We, we tried this for, you know, free for a month, and we never, we never looked back. God says, just try it. Try me. Test me. See if this won't work. 
Now, this isn't sort of a works-based earning model. God isn't saying, well, if you're good, then I'll just give you everything you want. No, no rather he's pointing out that, that there's, there's a faith-based response to what he's given. He says, if you follow my ways, you will experience my provision and my presence. If you follow my design, you, you are going to experience my provision and my presence. And, and notice, even in verse 12, the, the outcome of this, of this outpouring on them isn't just about them. It's about the whole world. He says, then the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delights, says the Lord of hosts. So God, if we experience his presence and, and, his, and his provision, we become a, a land of delight, a, a light to the nations. So some of you are probably thinking, Sir, Bill, are you saying that, you know, if I just start dropping some money in the offering box, that, that God is just going to, he's just going to start pouring out, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to have any more financial problems, and, and my life's just going to be good? A- absolutely not. In fact, I think it's important even in the context of this, of this passage to recognize that God's blessing comes in seasons. Uh, this is particularly an agricultural um, uh, context, right? So the, it talks about the vines growing and, and rebuking this thing, the locusts that are destroying, right? So God says, as you begin to be faithful to me, it isn't something that just happens over, uh, overnight, but it happens over a whole season, right? The, the devourer of the crops, these locusts will be banished, and then rain is going to come, and the crops start to grow, and then there's a harvest enough to fulfill the needs of the community. It, it wasn't faithfulness over just a, a one day. It was faithfulness over time. It's, it's not about, hey, I'm just going to drop some, you know, a few bucks in the offering plate, and the next week I'll get a raise at my job. I mean, <laughs> that's not how this works. And now, as, as a pastor talking about money, especially about financial giving, it, it can obviously can seem pretty self-serving. And, and honestly, I'd rather not talk about it. When we were looking at this text, I'm like, oh, do I, I don't really want to preach on money. You know, I don't want to talk about money, robbing God. But as a faithful a teacher of God's word, um, I'm simply seeking to, to teach what, what God's word is saying here. One of the things we say always at Christ Community, whenever we talk about giving and God's design for our finances, it's nothing, it's never about what we want from you. It's always about what we want for you. We were designed to live this way. We were designed to live and be reflecting in God's image. This is not about what we want from you. It's always about what we want for you. Christ's community giving of our, of our income, our wealth, is both a God-honoring discipline, but it's also a, it's a gracious delight. And in light of Malachi's teaching and other texts in the Scripture, we believe that, that our primary giving is connected to our place of worship. And, and the house of God, Paul says in the New Testament, is our local church. And we all wrestle with this, right? I mean, Rachel and I wrestle with this. How much to give? Where to give? Can we give more? Or should we give more? God says, try me. Just give me a chance. Give me a chance with the things that, that matter most to you. So we've seen an apathetic heart. It doubts God's goodness. It begins to, to settle for lesser loves. And finally, in verses 13 through 15, we see an apathetic heart. It begins to breed cynicism. So look down at verses 13 through 15. The people, God again is speaking to the people and he says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, uh, how have we spoken against you? And God says, you said it's vain to serve God. What profit is of our keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. The evildoers not only prosper, they, they put God to the test and they escape. 
God's people look around and say, say, God, God, it's useless to serve you. What do we ever get out of it? That's that's what this text is saying. What what difference does it make? I mean, the people who ignore you, the people who push your limits, who, who don't care about you, they're better off than I am. What good is it serving you? Again, have, have you ever felt like that? I mean, come on, be honest. I mean, I, I know I have, right? I mean, you, you look around at your neighbors and, and it seems like, you know, they, they don't go to church. They're, they're not serving God. They're not giving. And, and man, they, they're doing way better than me. You, you ever mutter under your breath and it sounds like, well, I could have a nicer car too if I wasn't giving so much, you know, right? We start to get cynical. Say, what, I, God, what did I ever get serving you? Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the person at the office who, who you know they are such a liar and, and they lie, and, and, but they still get promoted and they get a raise and they're doing well and, and you go, God, I, I tell the truth. I live with integrity and, and what do I, I keep getting passed over for promotion after promotion. God, what good is it serving you? The people who cheat, the kids at school who Bend the rules. They're the ones who are getting ahead. They're the ones who seem like they're living the life. What good is it serving you? You see, apathy breeds cynicism because apathy undermines relationship and trust. And think about this in your relationships. When you become apathetic in a human relationship, whether it's parent-child, a marriage relationship, friendship, when you begin to become apathetic in that relationship, the relationship starts to erode and trust starts to evaporate, right? Right? And you know this is happening because when something, when a person, the other person in the relationship does something you don't understand or you don't agree with, when, when apathy has begun to set in, you, your, your response to them is so cynical, right? If they do something that you don't understand or that you don't agree with, your first thought isn't immediately like, huh, well, let me, I'm sure they had a good reason for that. Let me, let me talk to them and, and try to understand. Maybe I'm just not understanding fully. I mean, no, right? Your reaction is immediately, idiot, why are they doing that? I, I can't believe this because there's no, there's no trust there anymore. I mean, parents, teens, have you ever felt this dynamic in your relationship? <laughs> there's no trust. <laughs> we assume the worst about one another. And this is where God's people were at. The apathy had eroded trust, and, and now they were cynical. And so again, how do we escape this cynicism? Again, there's, there's a lot that we could say here, but I, I want to just put it this way, to hold on to the story. Hold on to the story. How do we do that? Well, first, it involves obeying even when it hurts, obeying even when it doesn't make sense. Like, like first responders who are trained to run toward danger when other people are running away. We have to develop a reflex that when things are hard, that when things are difficult, when things don't make sense, that we still choose to obey. And we develop this reflex by holding on to the story, by remembering who we are. And this part of the text, it's so moving to me. If you look at verses 16 through 17, this is right after the people saying, God, what good is it to serve you? What good is it? Everyone's flourishing. We're trying to obey you, but we're getting nothing out of it. It's, listen to what it says in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord. God doesn't forget your faithfulness. There's a book of remembrance. He doesn't forget your faithfulness. Who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17. 
I love this. He says, the, the, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day, I will make them my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God says he will make us his treasured possession. His treasured possession. If you in Christ are a son or a daughter of God, then you are his treasured possession. He delights in you. He loves you. He esteems you. He has deep affection for you. He longs to see you flourish. He wants your best. You bring him great joy. God says, I know that all is not as it should be. And he says, there is a day that is coming. I know it's not all right yet. I know it's not fair. I know things don't seem to make sense sometimes. I know at times it feels utterly chaotic and things seem upside down and, and black seems like white and white seems like black. But God is not done yet. And this is one of the reasons we've been doing open here to help us to hold on to the story, to, to see this testimony of God's faithfulness, his love for his people throughout the entire year of reading this story. And, and the Old Testament ends here. I mean, this is the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And then there's going to be 400 years of silence. So we end this book with, with 400 years of silence on the way. People don't know it's going to be 400 years and, and apathy. But Malachi, at the very last verses of this book, he foreshadows the one who would come and break the silence. Elijah, that the great prophet of old, will return. And in the Gospels, it says that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that promise. John broke the silence, crying out to an apathetic people, and John prepared the way for Jesus, the one who would give up everything so that he could make you his treasured possession. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have made us your treasured possession. I just, the weight of that just overwhelms me. God, help us. By your spirit, may you help us to live into that identity of being your treasured possession. that we would know that even when things don't make sense, even when it hurts to obey, I pray that we would know deeply that we are your treasured possession. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Malachi was the last word that the people would have for a God for over 400 years. Um, and 400 years is a long time. I was thinking about that this week. 400 years. You know, our, our country uh, isn't even 400 years old yet. The United States won't celebrate its 400th birthday for another 163 years. Um, if I live to see the United States' 300th birthday, I'll be 94 years old when the U.S. turns 300. 400 years is a long time without a word from God. And so this morning as we come to the communion table and as we end our service together, we're going to get just a tiny taste of that silence, of that longing for a word from God. We're going to end our time together in silence. We're going to take communion together in silence. Then we're going to come back to our seats in silence and just end our time together in silence just to experience a little bit of what that 400 years must have been like as we long for the coming of Christ.
Christ community, we celebrate communion most weeks here, and you don't have to be a member of our church to participate with us in that. Um, If you have said, Jesus is my only hope, that he is the only way that I can possibly have a relationship with God, then you are welcome at the table here with us this morning. Whether that's been your belief since the, as long as you can remember, or today, this morning, sitting in your pew, you've come to realize that for the first time. If that is where you're at, then you are welcome at his table. And, and you're, of course, you never have to come. You're always welcome to just stay and reflect and use this time for prayer. Um, but if you do come, uh, it works best to exit out the side aisles and then kind of return back through the center aisles. And there are communion stations uh, here in the front, one on either side, and same in the back. And this communion station, uh, if you're new with us, it has gluten-free communion almonds, if that's something that, that you need available to you. So as you come, gather in groups of four or five, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and partake together. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for each one of you. And after supper, likewise, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink of this, all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. When you're ready, come now to the Lord's table. Taste and treasure the one who treasures you. Come when you're ready.